Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fote, and today we are podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute, it's time to begin. We're so excited tonight because we get to welcome former Governor Bill Ritter here to talk about his book, Powering Forward. Governor Ritter was the elected DA for Denver for 12 years, and then the governor for four years, and now he works at CSU. He serves as the director of the Center for the New Energy Economy, and that's what the book's about, Powering Forward. Now, without any further ado, Governor Bill Ritter. Thank you. Uh, It's such an honor to be able to do a little book signing and make some remarks about the book, and especially in the presence of so many friends, family members, uh, and former colleagues of mine. I've got a variety of people who are here who I worked with at the governor's office for a few years. My former chief of staff, the director of health care policy, Joan Henneberry, so Jim Carpenter. Um, Adrian Miller, who was the deputy legislative director and uh, author in his own right, who won the Beardsley Award for a food book. So uh, you might buy that as well on your way out. Um, <clears throat> so I'm going to make a few comments about the book, do just uh, a couple of short readings from the book by request, and then open it up to questions. And um, I think the first thing I'd like to just talk about is the reason I wrote this book. Um, I have had the privilege of doing a variety of things in my life, but uh, being governor was certainly high among them. And in that time, I learned a great deal both about energy policy, about environmental policy, and about what I would call the existential threat of climate change. And I was um, I was really educated in that by a lot of Coloradans who um, had been thinking about this for a very long time, and I just basically went to school as a candidate and then as the governor. And then I had the privilege of going to Colorado State University at the invitation of Tony Frank and running this policy center, and I began working with states. I did a project for the White House that uh, was also the same name, Powering Forward, so at least you know we lack imagination in the energy world to name it differently, but, but I like the title so well we, we named that as well. Um, but we've also worked with uh, states around the country. Most recently, we have been convening 13 western states on the Clean Power Plan. We're working right now with the Nature Conservancy, and we're designing a website that will identify where there are gaps in energy policy in each of the 50 states. So this is something we've done, and, and over the course of that, I felt like we needed to tell a story. And that that story um, should be about what I perceive is happening in the United States and what I call the energy revolution, but as well to talk about the need to accelerate that to meet really this threat that we experience as a globe. And there are a lot of other people who have written a lot about energy policy We thought that I was perhaps a bit unique in that I had been a governor, I had worked across the aisle with Republicans and Democrats in trying to form energy policy. I signed 57 pieces of clean energy legislation while I was governor and then have found a way even since then at CSU to continue to try and understand how we best move this country forward and and really show leadership around clean energy policy, 
um, addressing environmental issues, addressing economic issues, and certainly addressing climate change as a part of that, but how we do it uh, by having a conversation that involves all Americans, not just one side of the aisle. And I say in the book, we're far better off. We are far better off if we can do this and do this together than do it in a partisan way. So I'm going to do a couple of short readings from the book that uh, really, I guess, give you a sense about what we're trying to accomplish, what I'm trying to accomplish in this book. While we're not certain how rapidly the impacts of climate change will escalate, little mystery remains about what they will be. More than a century of research, including the largest scientific exercise ever undertaken, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, has foreseen a future of devastating drought, deadly heat, unprecedented floods, historic hurricanes, and wildfires so intense that they destroy the force's ability to regenerate. We are now observing evidence that confirms the, predi the predictions of the past. Climate models, oceans are rising, species are migrating north and climbing to higher elevations to escape rising temperatures, and insects have turned vast forts of the American West and British Columbia into tinder where they stand. Pests and pestilence are appearing where they did not exist before. We've heard so many warnings from so many places about our ongoing disruption of the biosphere that we're in danger of becoming deaf to them. These are crises largely of our own making, prolonged by political resistance and willful, willful ignorance that stand in the way of national action to curb greenhouse gas emissions. Client scientists are summoned to congressional hearings today to be accused of heresy by elected leaders who deny the reality of global warming. It is as though our politics have regressed four centuries to the time of Galileo. We're better than this, and we can do better than this. We need to find common ground on which to build a prosperity based on stewardship of natural capital and environmental systems, and on the knowledge that our well-being is intimately interconnected with those systems. While we want to grow our economy and markets for products throughout the world, we must remain stubborn stewards of our environment, leaving the next generation a future worthy of all our technological accomplishments. We need a moral economy that recognizes our obligation to those who built and sacrificed to preserve our country in the past and to those who will inherit it in the future. The energy revolution requires that we reassert fundamental American values that transcend partisanship, conservation, independence, choice, freedom, self-sufficiency, transparency in government, duty to country, and the commitment that each generation will make life a little better for the generations that follow. There are selfish reasons, too. The need for a global energy revolution has been called the largest market opportunity in history, and if we do not capture that opportunity, other nations will. There's another paragraph I wanted to read, and then I think... Make some additional comments. Then. As a Catholic and a former missionary, I recognize the moral and spiritual dimensions of our role in the biosphere. There is a long-standing dialogue among Christians about whether God intended for us to dominate nature or to be its stewards. Both sides in the conversation can cite biblical passages that seem to support their interpretations. But nature long predates 
But nature, I'm sorry, but nature long predates the written word of God as God's way of communicating with humanity. I agree with the late Carl Sagan who said, the notion that science and spirituality are somehow mutually exclusive does a disservice to both. Pope Francis's encyclical drew objections from politicians and think tanks that argued that his job is to address moral issues, not political issues. As someone who has straddled the worlds of faith and public policy, however, I have rarely, if ever, encountered an issue of public policy that does not have a moral dimension. In regards to climate change, the distinction between the morality and the politics of climate action should be clear. The need to do something is without question a moral issue. It is about what the most privileged do for the least among us, including our responsibility to future generations. The goals necessary to abate climate change are a science issue. How we achieve those goals is a political issue. None of these should have ever become a partisan issue. And in the conclusion, I say, it is a true privilege to be an American. It was also my great honor to serve as the governor of Colorado, an experience I will treasure for the rest of my days. Every administration has mixed success, but our best work always involved both sides of the aisle working together. Unfortunately, energy policy and politics in the United States have become increasingly divisive, especially in Washington, D.C., I suspect there are some who will read this book suggesting an energy revolution and think that I am not a patriot. They would be wrong. I believe that a global crisis is looming on the horizon, and the United States not only can but must take the lead in addressing it, in large part through a dynamic overhaul in how we produce and consume energy. The well-being of people around the globe depends on us doing just that. So those are some, some um, paragraphs from the book, but let me just make a few more comments and then open it up to questions. Um, a lot of this is also about policy. And uh, when we first took it to a publisher, they said, well, it's just not edgy. I said, well, it is about energy policy, which <laughs> is not all that edgy. And then I um, took it to Fulcrum, and they looked at it, and they agreed to print it. And I want to just publicly thank Fulcrum for taking a chance on this book because, quite frankly, uh, there isn't a lot of pizzazz in this. There are not a lot of who done what or who shot John in the book. I don't tell stories, you know, from the inside of the governor's office. But I outlined a couple of things. One, that we need a national energy vision. Secondly, that in that energy vision, we have to – Think about dramatic changes to how we produce and consume energy. Thirdly, that we have to do that in a fairly rapid fashion. I have a a chapter called uh, The Need for Speed because we cannot keep waiting on Congress to develop that vision as it becomes more and more apparent that climate change is happening. And as the Pope pointed out in his encyclical, that the people who will be hit worst and first are the poorest around the globe. Um, I also have a, a chapter in here that talks about the future of fossil fuels. 
I have a chapter that talks about the future of natural gas because I see that separately. And that is its own sort of divisive issue in many corners because people look at natural gas and say, well, we have to do we have to end this and end this today. And I just don't see that as a possibility. And so I call for regulations and strong regulation, strong enforcement and a culture of compliance inside of the industry as part of this clean energy transition. I also look at the future of renewable energy. As you might expect, I think it's pretty bright. The prospect is pretty good. If you saw the article yesterday in the Denver Post business section, it talked about the future or it talked about sort of the last year for wind and solar. And it looked at the investments. I think Bloomberg has said last year that it was about a $321 billion investment in wind and solar and said that half of that was in the Asia Pacific. So there are a lot of places around the globe where people are taking advantage of that opportunity at the same time they try and address their own environmental issues, their public health issues, and this really dramatic issue of climate change. I had the advantage of going to Paris and being part of the Paris Accord. I wasn't a, a main player in that. I got to speak about what they called the role of subnationals, states and cities, in helping nations meet their climate targets that they had put on the put on the table as part of their own declarations. And at Paris, 185 nations put a declaration on the table. 195 nations will sign an accord on April 22nd. That is really historic in that there's nothing that they've ever agreed on, like they agree on this issue of us needing to address climate change. And part of that addressing of climate change has to come to our thinking about how we uh, produce and consume energy. In this book, I also say, in a variety of places, that it's important to understand that fossil fuels have played this dramatic role in building the middle class and really helping us develop our prowess as a nation, economic prowess as a nation, as it relates to the rest of the world. And that in this transition, we understand that it will be disruptive. And it's going to particularly be disruptive to people who have worked for generations, their family have worked for generations in coal mines, to communities where there have been big investments in coal. And we, we even see it now with layoffs happening in Montana and Wyoming that have been recently reported. We've seen two of the three biggest companies in Wyoming, Alpha and Arch, go into bankruptcy. And a third company, Peabody, lose 90% of its value over the last five years. So there is disruption that's taking place, and part of our understanding of the transition has to be a just transition where we pay attention to how we ensure that those families, that those communities, and those states can actually find a new economy, can find a way to develop a different energy economy or just a, a different overall economy, and that government has a role in that. We say that governments have to intervene in this, that this can't be this discussion about the free market because, quite frankly, and with some irony, Texas began re uh, regulating energy development and energy production back in 1905. So it's a regulated industry, and we're not going to get to where we need to get to without regulation. We say that markets have this very important role and that at the end of the day, my belief and what I put in this book is that markets and policy together can help us in this transition. It's just that it has to be rapid and we have to have a vision for how we go forward. And finally, there's a chapter there about states being the main player. We can all lament what's happening in Washington, D.C. And if you haven't read the book, uh, it's even worse than it looks. You might take a look at it because it's about the United States Congress. 
and really makes the case that even Americans who think Congress is completely broken might not understand how broken it is. The exciting thing is that in states around the country, both on the part of Republicans and Democrats, there are a variety of things happening that can really make this energy revolution happen and happen from the bottom up to where to the point, I think, where Congress won't have any option but to act. There's a variety of things Congress can do at the national level. I talk a little bit about that, and, and uh, hopefully you'll find that interesting and that uh, members of Congress will also find it interesting enough to at least pay attention to the kinds of things that they could do to help us develop this national energy vision that really, in a, in a way, can help us lead the rest of the globe. It is more morality, it's science, and it's politics at its most sort of interesting place, but it's also existential. And that's the point I leave you with. I wrote this book because I think this climate threat is an existential threat and that there is this path forward. We just need to take it and we need to begin to take it in a far more sort of rapid way and a faster way than we've done in the past. We need to accelerate our efforts and there are ways to do that. That's what the book's about. Again, thank you uh, for being here. Thank you for being willing to be here on a Monday night and listen to this. And let's now go to your questions and see if we can have a bit of a dialogue about this. So thanks. Yes, sir. I agree that we need all hands on deck, um, but business as usual benefits from delay. So how do we bring in the other side without letting them cause more delay? We don't have time for that. Um, I'm supposed to repeat the question because this is being podcast. So the question is, Really, um, we don't have time for delay. How do we bring in the other side? How can we get to the place that this is really, you know, all of Americans with all hands on deck that are making the move? Um, you know, I've always heard authors say this, and now I understand why. I have a chapter on that. Um, but so, so I have a chapter called Changing the Conversation, and one of the things we look at is kind of all of these barriers and people, the arguments that people put up, and we try and, you know, make the case that those things can be talked about and, and argued about, but many of those cases, you know, many of the things they say just aren't true. It's not always the best way to get other people to agree with you. So one of the things we suggest is to listen to the other side. Try and listen pretty carefully. The second thing I suggest is for us to get out of our echo chambers, because a lot of us, and particularly in today's uh, popular media, but even in today's social media, we live inside an echo chamber where we only pay attention, we only pay attention to media that resonates with what we already think. And I think it's really important for us to listen to what the other side thinks and ask the question, okay, how do I respond to that? So because of the blizzard, I didn't get to the Aspen Institute in Washington, D.C. to be part of a panel that included two Republicans and two Democrats. One of the Republicans is a congressman, Bob Inglis, who left Congress, actually got voted out because he, was, he made the case for climate change and lost a Republican primary. But he's really good about thinking about how conservatives think about this and how related to talk about it. And there's a variety of ways to do this. And I say in here, we need to focus on risk management. I had a question when I testified in front of a Senate committee from Senator Jeff Sessions. He said, what do you believe about climate scientists? And I said, well, I'm not a scientist, and I don't think I'm the first guy to say that. But I said, I'm not a scientist, but I did serve in public office for, you know, 12 plus 4 years, 16 years. And what I believe is that people in public life should be about managing risks, 
And this is a real risk. And the second part of that is that I'm not just saying that. The markets are now demonstrating there is a risk. First of all, there is a risk to the business model of utilities if they do business as usual. There's a risk to a variety of different companies that are making big bets on fossil fuels going forward in the 21st century. And the shareholders are now pushing those companies to actually have a better assessment of the risk. Um, and, and finally, you know, there's a risk to our infrastructure, our energy infrastructure, if we don't think about how to build this out differently. So if you think about it in terms of risk, and then you think about it in terms of investment, there is a true market opportunity. And people who say, again, the free market, the free market, it's not going to be about the free market. But pay attention to the markets because there is a market opportunity and investment opportunity. When the Supreme Court stayed the clean power plan, some of the most disappointed people in the United States were CEOs of utilities because they lost the market certainty that came with the clean power plan about the transition they needed to make to reduce their emissions 32% by 2030. So those are the kinds of things that I think will help engage conservatives. Some bright spots in this whole conversation. Recently, there was a clean energy accord signed off by 17 governors. Four of them are Republican. The governor of Massachusetts, Michigan, Iowa, and Nevada. So really, in some respects, four distinct Republican states or Republican governors said, we want to be part of this clean energy accord. Uh, Congressman Inglis has developed a climate caucus inside of Congress that is bipartisan. And so while it's been tough to bridge this partisan gap. And while there still remains a lot of work to do, there are ways to have this conversation. Listening may be one of the most important things we can do in order to have the right conversation. But as well, we see a variety of sort of changes in the veneer that should give us some hope that this is happening. Yes. And so we actually, uh, so I have to repeat the question. Um, the question is, okay, we talk about an energy vision that's revolutionary and really a moonshot moment. I mentioned the moonshot as part of a, a template for us to think about. I have uh, a, a chapter that deals with a couple of different times where we've done some dramatic things. They both happen to be at world fairs in the 20th century where, you know, we saw what it would look like to electrify a city for the first time. We saw what it would look like to build a major interstate transportation network and have vehicles that were able to travel on this interstate transportation. So one was Futurama, the other was, actually the other was, the, it was 1896, so I guess it was in the 19th century. But, but really, those kinds of things, how do we do that? So first, there has to be leadership around this. And, and granted, right, we have a problem in the United States Congress in terms of Congress exercising that leadership. So we have to come at this from a lot of different angles. Uh, the president put this front and center for his second term. I think if you look at the president's first term legacy, it was really about the Affordable Care Act. I think the people inside the White House, including the president, would look at climate change and clean energy as part of his second term legacy. So you've got a president that does that. I happened to be in the gallery when the, the Pope spoke to Congress. So one of the most important moral figures in the world presently making the case, not just about climate change, but really a worldview that talks about economic 
degradation and economic inequality linked to environmental degradation and needing to have sort of a way to build out of that. And the members of the Congress, I think, were very attentive to having a pope do that. Then you have state leadership where we see a variety of things happening, as I just addressed with these 17 governors. But beyond that, things happening in states. And, and many times the conversation is not about climate change at all. It's about business opportunities. There's a reason states like Kansas are exporting wind and making a great deal of money doing it. States you know, like Iowa, where he was part of the Clean Energy Accord, South Dakota, North Dakota, tremendous wind opportunities, other states viewing solar as an opportunity, states of Arizona and Nevada as examples of states doing that. And so that kind of comes from uh, the state level, the state perspective. And then some of the most important things that are happening as a part of this are from the cities. And if you take a state like Texas that has pushed back against a lot of this conversation about this clean energy transition, they've also participated in you know, wind. They have 14 gigawatts of wind. But they have two cities, San Antonio and Austin, that are moving ahead of the curve in a dramatic way and showing that it can happen, that you can actually get clean energy on the grid in a way that's reliable, but you can also do it in a way that's affordable to the ratepayer. So we call it the four E's. It's about energy, the environment, economic development, and equity for ratepayers. And you're having cities and states demonstrate that. Over time, I think that's how we get to this place of having a national vision, building it up, building it down. The people of the United States deciding in elections that they'll cast a vote and that there's political intensity around issues like clean energy. If you look at the polling in the West, there's such a great ambition in, in, in states like Montana, Wyoming, Utah, New Mexico, Colorado. Uh, Colorado College has done a variety of polls. They call it the state of the West. The next electrons that people in those states want are clean energy. And even uh, in states like Wyoming and Montana, the voters will say, we'll pay a little bit more for that to get it there. And, and yet it doesn't have a political intensity around it when it comes to election time. The time that it does will be when the people, the, the, the leadership there, and, and local government, state government are all on board, and it really forces Congress to think completely different about that. I think that's already happening it's just how soon can it happen where they are part of the transition. Yes. Um, yeah, I think, uh, thank you, Governor. I haven't read the book, but uh, something like the world's energy, 85 to 90% of it is fossil fuels. So this transition that has to happen quickly, who pays for it, and how is that paid around the world? Well, so there's a, a few things about that. Um, first of all, that's on the decline. Oh, the, the question, repeating the question. So... Uh, the world's energy, 85 to 90% fossil fuel. And um, in that transition, it's going to cost money. Who's going to pay for it? First of all, um, we dispute the notion that this is actually going to cost more money, necessarily cost more money, um, partly based on our own experience. So there are a lot of naysayers when I signed a piece of legislation that doubled our renewable energy standard to 20% and then again uh, increased it to 30% in 2010. And they said this is going to cost so much more to transition to 30% renewables on the grid. And, and quite frankly, we can't do it. And we won't have reliability if we do that, try and integrate that in. They were wrong. And if you look at XL Energy, XL will decrease its emissions from 2005 by 35% going forward to 2020. So in a 15-year period, 35% decrease. And if you look at what we pay relative to the rest of the people in the United States, sort of the average rates, our rates have gotten cheaper. 
Part of that is cheap natural gas, but part of it is also the serious price decline in both wind and solar. And again, the Bloomberg article makes that point yesterday that storage is itself on this rapid price decline. And if you take that and consider that you could get to the point with solar and storage or wind and a storage technology in these rapid price declines, we don't have to accept this premise that it's going to be more expensive. And it's really important to think about the experiences states have had where right now in Colorado, there are uh, power purchase agreements that are for like. 2.5 cents a kilowatt hour. You add in the production tax credit, which is another 2.2 cents, and so you get to 4.7 cents. That's cheaper than the levelized cost of coal. And you pay for certainly the technology, and as that comes down, that's good news. You don't pay for the fuel because the fuel's wind and the fuel's solar. So, So we really have to think about that and constantly pay attention to this notion about what it's going to cost to make this transition. You said... Well, let's do, let's do those two questions. So there are two different questions. One is, what about the rest of the world? And secondly, what about transportation? And so really, as it relates to the rest of the world, I happen to do uh, a variety of things in China because I'm on this board that funds clean energy policy in China and tries to help that government think about a clean energy transition. It has to make that transition, first of all. And they import a lot of their coal, and so it actually becomes more expensive to utilize imported coal like they do in China. But they also have this tremendous health problem, this tremendous public health problem that has to do in part with coal-fired generation. And so, again, to think that uh, it's going to be more expensive for the Chinese, where they also have great places in the country for both wind and solar. They have some potential around geothermal. They have tidal energy that's available and energy efficiency possibilities that actually are cheaper as well. So it's important to look at each country and to sort of dissect that and ask, okay, how expensive is the transition going to be and how do you make this transition in a way that's equitable to ratepayers? I just was explaining our experience because you can accept what the naysayers say and you'll never do what's necessary to sort of make this transition. And we think that that's really possible. We're doing some work at CSU building out microgrids in Rwanda. There are places there are 1.2 billion people in the world without energy coming into their homes or their huts. And there are a variety of ways ways we believe that we can actually build out energy for the first time that can also be clean and fossil fuel free. On the transportation side, that's less my bailiwick than energy production and consumption for electricity purposes. But I do look at this in the book and say there are a variety of things happening in the transportation world. And one of them really does have to do with electric vehicles. A gentleman here tonight brought me a paper, uh, an executive summary of a a bio-waste-to-fuel technology that he's working on with a group of people at a startup company here in Colorado. There are uh, are folks that are working on algae-to-fuel. Colorado State University has a plant producing fuel from algae down on the Southern Ute Indian Reservation. And then the president signed a bill that looks at CAFE standards, fuel economy standards. And in 2025, 2026, you're going to see fleets having to have 56 miles per gallon on average as part of their fleet. or They're not going to be able to operate. And so if you think about all the different things that are happening in the vehicle world, there's a variety of people looking at it. I don't believe everybody's going to drive a $35,000 Tesla. 
but they are now available in the back order, like the week they became available was 300,000. It just demonstrates that there's at least this appetite in trying to figure it out. And, and again, I think this is a transition that can happen fairly rapidly once it begins happening. And, and I think few uh, oil companies are being forced to really reckon with this as well, again, by their shareholders and by their boards. A lot of questions. So, you, sir, and then you in the back okay. next. First, thank you for your work in this field, and thank you for talking to us here. Um, you mentioned uh, Representative Inglis, and one of the policies he's pushing really hard is a revenue um, neutral carbon tax. And I wonder if you could comment on that as a market idea. So, uh, the question involves the reference back to Congressman, the former Congressman Bob Inglis, and one of the things that he is pushing is a revenue neutral carbon price, I would say, uh, carbon tax, carbon fee, but revenue neutral, meaning that uh, we find another way to reduce revenue coming into the government. One of the things that's talked about in Washington, D.C., if you're going to do that, put a price on carbon and charge people who are emitting carbon um, is to reduce or eliminate the corporate income tax, as an example. And so um, I think that that's a while, in the, uh, that's a long way off if you think about sort of the politics of Washington, D.C., what it ultimately will take is a reform of the tax code. So not just inserting a price on carbon, but looking at the entire tax code and saying with everything that we do in the tax code to try and manage energy policy, putting a price on carbon would be only one thing. And then there's going to be deals that will be made, including the possibility that it has to be revenue neutral and that a reduction of taxes, including the corporate income taxes, is a part of it. I think that uh, there are a lot of people who support the investment tax credit that really helps solar, the production tax credit, and they're both going away. One in 2020, the production tax credit, 2022 for the investment tax credit. And what I make, the argument I make in the book is, then let's, let's sunset all of the subsidies, so all of the different ways that we subsidize, particularly thinking about the production of fossil fuels, so intangible drilling costs or acceleration of, of the depreciation you get for downhole operations, those kinds of things that if we said, okay, wipe it clean. And you know who, who said this publicly? Jeb Bush in New Hampshire said, why don't we take the tax code and eliminate all of the subsidizing we do around energy and then develop an energy policy? And if part of that energy policy says, let's capture this externality that we don't capture, right? Carbon impacts. There's a cost of putting carbon out of the smokestack. And greenhouse gases is, is just a part of that. But we socialize that across the entire globe. And at the same time, we let people privatize the profit taking on that. And that's called an externality that's not captured. Bring that back in, price carbon, and you have really the makings of a national energy policy that can help us accelerate this. The National Academy of Science has said in a couple of different occasions, it's the single biggest thing we could do nationally. So I think Inglis is right in saying that would be important to do. I think it's going to involve a conversation among a lot of really important players inside of Congress, the United States Senate, and will it happen? I don't. It's not going to happen right this session. It's probably not going to happen in the very near future, but it is the thing that could make the most difference. So I think he's right to say that. Yes, sir. In the previous question, you explained how um, profitable or how economically viable clean and renewable energy can be. Um, why do you then talk about how you need so much regulation to have the market work? Why wouldn't a freer market take advantage of this economy? I guess it was kind of explained to me best by the CEO of a major 
energy company, a major utility, said basically we're a regulated entity. We do what we're told. So think about the renewable portfolio standard. You could not pass that in the Colorado legislature uh, before 2004. So the people of Colorado, the first place in the country it went on the ballot, passed a renewable portfolio standard of 10%. And then I, as governor, increased it to 20% with the utility agreeing. And then I increased, increased it again to 30% with the utility agreeing. We put in ratepayer protection. We would not have the kind of buildup. We've increased the amount of wind on the grid tenfold since I, became, since I first became governor in 20, 2007. We would not have had that without this policy push without really a standard saying this is what you have to get to because you're talking to a regulated industry that's used to being told what to do. And they, they're not, with all due respect to them, they're not agents of change, right? And this is a change, and in some respects a disruptive change. But that policy sort of pushed him to the point where the market then took over, and the CEO of Excel has said on, on various occasions, one, they put a filing in front of the PUC where they said, we want 700 and some megawatts of new clean energy, solar and wind, and it's not because of the renewable portfolio standard. It's because of the market. The main CEO, the corporate CEO of Excel operates out of Minneapolis, and he just said the best long-term bet right now for us as a company is wind, not natural gas, not low-priced natural gas, and he said it for a variety of reasons. But, but that's about the market taking over, but that market wouldn't have got to the scale that allowed the economies of scale to bring down prices for ratepayers if there hadn't been a policy push. And that's what I mean about markets and policy working in concert to try and get you to the place where you make the transition. One doesn't happen without the other. Yes, sir. I think we have energy on demand in the United States presently, right? We have a reliable electric system. We have a reliable transmission system. And the question is, if you make this transition, how do you maintain that reliability? I think, and I don't think I repeated the question, but I, in my answer, hopefully it's implicit what the question was. But that's, so that's my sense that this is a possible thing to do. Now, I talk about natural gas as a part of the sort of clean energy future because natural gas can firm wind and solar. I had this opportunity to go to BP in Houston and talk to them about natural gas regulation. And they said, come downtown. We want to show you we're monitoring wind farms that we own. Two of those wind farms were in Colorado, and they said right now they're the best wind farms in the nation. They were operating at 95% capacity for a two-week period in January of 2013. And, and they were firming that. That other 5% was gas. Now, there will be times where the wind isn't blowing and it's going to be more, but the wind deals are 50% capacity factor, meaning that they're blowing 50% of the time. And you combine solar and wind in a state like Colorado, firm it with gas, you get to a place where Excel can look at this emissions reduction. In the western United States, the states we're working in, if you create a market and you have transmission lines that are moving electricity across state lines from clean energy resources, you actually get to a place where you need 
need less and less and less storage and less firming because of the different times that the sun shines and the wind blows. There's a southwestern Wyoming energy a wind project that's being developed right now by the Anschutz Corporation. And that wind peaks when demand is highest in Los Angeles, California. And what it just takes is mapping the load and mapping, mapping the uh, ability to produce either from wind or solar or the need to, to firm it with natural gas. Then you look at storage technology. So storage technology is improving. The price is on the decline. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who would have 20 years ago would have not believed the kinds of technological developments that we've been able to make over time. If you think about the Internet, if you think about cell phones, if you think about all the different things that we've been able to do with information systems, those same kinds of things are absolutely useful in thinking about how we manage energy consumption, how we develop storage technology around that, and get to a place where really there is a way to think about this, where we can be fossil fuel free by 2050 and beyond. Yes, ma'am. Can you talk a little bit about what we as individuals can do um, to make our voices heard better, both in the industry and in Congress? Well, so the question is, what can individuals do to make our voices heard better, uh, both with industry and with Congress? And I first of all think this conversation about investment is really important. So in places where you're invested as a shareholder, you know, really make the case that companies need to do risk management around their own investments and sort of, you know, what they're doing in terms of their business model that might be at risk if, in fact, climate change is real, which I believe it is. And as this energy transition happens, uh, there's a variety. I was, again, in Paris there were a variety of companies that were there in Paris talking about the kinds of things that they're doing. And some of those things are being pushed by shareholders, and some of them are being pushed by customers. And so the way we consume and the way we invest are both important parts to that. And the final thing I would say is think about you know the politics of this, because it is really important to understand the link between politics and some of the barriers we have faced. And we really have to make the case that office holders have to do the right things where climate change is concerned, the right things where the energy transition is concerned. And uh, I think it's uh, been difficult for us to sort of make that case and be heard because voters haven't really responded. Um, and, and quite frankly, you know, in the 2012 elections, there wasn't climate change wasn't mentioned a single time in the presidential debates between uh, President Obama and his opponent, Mitt Romney. And, and in fact, both at different times have been really big champions around trying to understand this and trying to figure this out. So those are the kinds of things individuals can do. And then just your own individual choices about how you consume energy. So maybe one or two last questions. Yes, ma'am. So the question is, uh, Naomi Klein wrote a book called This Changes Everything. She makes the case, I think she doesn't say all the time, but that there are occasions where trade agreements, the goals of trade agreements collide with the goals of um, trying to reduce emissions, trying to address climate change, trying to do the kinds of things that are called for in the Paris Accords. And what I would say is then we have to change our thinking about that. Now, there's a lot of debate about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It's, the acronym is the TPP. And actually, I think 
four out of the five remaining candidates um, are opposed to Obama's TPP. What they put in the Trans-Pacific Partnership were uh, a variety of fairly important environmental restrictions in terms of the trade. And so uh, while I think you can look to the past and see that environmental issues may not have been a part of that, the present administration, at least, has made that part of their thinking where they're trying to put in place new treaties and, and particularly new trade treaties. It, it can't go unnoticed, right, that the president of the United States and the president of China were able to come to two significant agreements that moved China in a fairly dramatic way. Um, both China's uh, decision to adopt a cap-and-trade system and to state publicly when they would finally have sort of their cap on coal usage. China consumes half of the world's coal. So 50% of all the world's coal is consumed in one country. And they said, okay, we're going to reach that in 2020, and then we're going to level off. And the question is how you know rapidly they make that decline. But still, that was that was the Obama administration, I would say, in large part, making China sort of put up what it would do. The president of the United States um, really drug sort of India into the Paris Accords in a way that nobody expected could happen, where Prime Minister Modi actually also put on the table declarations that a year before that no one thought were, were going to happen. So it it's, is in part about trade negotiations, but it's also about international diplomacy. And I think um, a recognition on the part of leaders around the world that now this has to be part of our lexicon, our political lexicon, and our trade lexicon, because it's that important of an issue. Last question. Well, obviously, we've got the upcoming elections. Um, what's it going to look like after we have a new president? I'm sure you've uh, been working on that. Um... So, you know, I, again, we're trying to bridge partisan lines. Um, and, and it's interesting, right? Because the next president's going to matter. If you think about what a president of the United States can do to put, sort of push clean energy agenda, I, we wrote a report for the president of the United States in the White House and made 200 recommendations at their request. They said, put everything in, including the kitchen sink. And we did um, 200 recommendations about how a president can move a clean energy agenda without Congress acting. So there's a variety of really important things that the president can do. The Department of Defense is the largest consumer inside the United States, and the United States federal government is the largest energy consumer worldwide. So the largest consumer inside the largest consumer is the Department of Defense. And guess what? They are trying to make this rapid transition to clean energy. And why are they doing that? They're doing that because they do threat analysis. They look at, at what kinds of security risks are at play. They look at the economic risks that are at play. They look at environmental degradation. They think about international security and the kind of conflicts we'll see with climate refugees, with water conflicts, if we don't address climate change. All that is part of the Department of Defense's take on this, and they know we have to make this transition. Having a president that backs the play of the Department of Defense is absolutely critical. And it would appear that the next president of the United States could well choose the next justice of the Supreme Court. And it's also fair to say we probably have a 4-4 split on the Supreme Court where a variety of issues concerning clean energy and even the clean power plan as an example, those kinds of things. We've had a lot of 5-4 decisions, and who that next justice is on the Supreme Court could really impact where the majority is and really, again, 
in looking at issues that come before could really help decide what the future of action on the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, environment, a variety of other kinds of environmental concerns that are at play, uh, they could be decided by that next justice. That's how important it is. So thank you very much. I really appreciate that you're here and the opportunity to be with you. That's all for tonight's Author on Tour. I'm Darren Foden. We have been podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Stay pod-tuned in the coming weeks as we podcast Authors on Tour.